0: Welcome to Liesley, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody who isn't in one of tonight's stories, anyway, wins, because here at the Phoenix, we're going to be turning up the heat with our Halloween theme of Slash and Burn. We'll be shredding three stories in the first half. And then we'll take a break so you can turn yourselves over we want you all evenly done before returning with the infamous lively book quiz. And then three more torn strips of charred blackened nightmare before that terribly uncouth dash for the fire exits. Now liar liar pants on fire and the reason your pants will be on fire is because of the liar's latest invention which turns a ringing mobile phone into an incendiary device so if you don't want your never regions cremated please turn your phones to silent to off and so our first story of the evening will be Ghost Story by Niall Boyce, read by Peter Noble Niall is a writer and editor he was born and brought up in Wales but gradually drifted east he has published one novel and lots of short stories most notably for Big Finish's Doctor Who range Peter was born in a South African valley, lovely beyond any singing of it it says here. Hippie musicians dragged to him from an idyllic childhood, running barefoot through rich and matted grass with his dog, Bartok, to vegetarian communes from California to India via Lisbon, London and Findhorn. Apparently, he likes telling stories. Peter!
1: The Ghost Story by Niall Boyce. Do you like ghost stories? (coughs) Doesn't everyone? The man looked as if he was about to answer me, then stopped himself, smiled and scratched his chin. He was in his late thirties, I reckon, but he was in a bad way. His eyes were bloodshot and his fingers stained with nicotine. I had just popped into the pub off Cavendish Square to get out of the rain. I suspected that he had been drinking all day. You say that, he said. But I've never found anyone who'll listen to mine. He picked at the papery skin on the back of his hands. Now I don't think I've got much time left to tell it in. I glanced out of the window. The rain was slacking off, but the sky was still a threatening gunmetal. How long do you need? He looked up. Ten minutes? No more? Seriously, you want to hear it? Perhaps it was his line about not having much time that swayed me. A mixture of pity. He was clearly very unwell, and the implicit salesmanship in his words. Limited supply book now to avoid disappointment. Why not? The man hesitated for a moment, then began. It happened ten years ago when I was working just down the road. He stopped and looked at the bottom of his empty glass. I asked the barman for two pints. He turned away from the TV screen, served us and then went back to his viewing. My companion took a swig of his drink, sloshed it around his mouth as if tasting a fine wine, and went on. I was a junior doctor during the last days of the old Middlesex Hospital on Mortimer Street. It's gone now. The house is gone too. The one where the doctor's room was. It was knocked down at around the time the hospital was demolished. There's just a gap where it used to be. The doctor's room. The doctor's room was something only the juniors knew about. We were supposed to stay on the hospital site during our own calls, but sometimes it was dead quiet, and you wanted to catch up on some sleep. The people who ran the hospital wanted us awake for the whole shift, even if there was nothing to do. Hospital managers are like that. They took the couches out of the doctor's mess and put hard chairs in. So to have a lie down, you went round the corner to this old house. The key was under the mat. All the doors, except the one to the doctor's room, were shut and locked and hadn't been opened in a long time. There was an old mirror in the hallway, a full-length one, tarnished and darkening at the edges. And that was it for decoration. The wallpaper, I remember, was peeling, peeling in strips, as if someone had slashed it with a knife. The doctor's room was where the old living room had been, round the front of the house. The hospital owned the building, but they'd long forgotten it. Some bit of paper got lost somewhere, probably. I think the electricity company forgot about it, too, because the lights still worked. Our bleeps were within range of the hospital so they could get hold of you. When your bleep went off, you just had to get out of bed, stroll down the road and get to work. The room itself, the doctor's room, had been done up really nicely. There was the bed, a kettle, a TV, just bits and bobs people had brought in over the years. You wouldn't have guessed what was underneath. The man took hold of his pint and slid it. "'gently across the smooth, dark wood of the bar, "'as if it were the glass on a Ouija portal. "'Go on,' I said. "'He took a deep breath, like a diver preparing to jump, "'then continued. "'During the war, a doctor and his family had lived in the house. "'They were well-to-do, and they were tired of going down to the tube at night "'to escape the bombs dropping on London.' The doctor's wife didn't want to wreck their garden with an Anderson shelter, so they had a builder come in and convert their basement. They had to enlarge quite a lot of it, of course, dig a bit deeper, strike out further under the house, but once it was done, they just opened a trap door in the living room, and down they went. They had it fixed up really well. It was decorated just like the room above it so after a while you'd forget you were in a shelter at all. One day the doctor didn't turn up for work. It wasn't like him, so the hospital checked to see if he'd been injured and brought in anywhere. He hadn't, and no one had seen his wife or his child either. It was evening by the time they got a locksmith to let his registrar into the house. It was completely dark inside and the blackout curtains were still drawn all the rooms were locked the registrar knew about the shelter he reckoned that maybe something had gone wrong and his consultant had got trapped down below so they broke the door open went in and opened the hatch in the floor he was right something had gone wrong something had gone very wrong What? The carpet, the wallpaper, the furniture. Everything was soaked in blood. In the corner was what looked like a heap of wet clothes. It was only when the registrar went over to look at it that he saw that it was the body of the doctor and his wife, slashed about and broken so horribly that they barely looked human anymore. And behind them, against the wall, as if his mother and father had been trying to protect him, was their young son. Alive? The man shook his head. Dead. Dead of fright. What killed them? I have my own ideas about that. Do you think much about London under? The towns and villages and temples under our feet. Places where things went to die or hide. Places where sacrifices were performed, perhaps. He put his hand on the crumpled copy of the Evening Standard resting on the bar. I've read that more and more rich folks are building under their houses these days. Gyms, swimming pools, cinemas. They should be more careful. The man took a long sip of his drink already it was almost finished the registrar and the locksmith decided that whatever was in that house should stay there so they told the authorities they hadn't found anything and eventually everyone forgot about it people went missing the whole time in the war then how did the story get passed on how did you hear it I'll come to that. The next thing I have to tell you is what happened to me. It was a night in October. I was about two months into my job. Someone else was covering A&E while the patients were on the ward, when were tucked in and asleep. I didn't expect to be disturbed, but when I lay down on the bed in the doctor's room, I left the light on, just in case I was bleak and had to leave in a hurry. I left the light on. I am sure I left the light on. And that was the thing. His voice was lower now. I had to lean forward to hear. When I woke up, the light was off. It was completely black in the room. I wondered what had woken me up. I felt around for my bleep, and I checked it. But it hadn't gone. My eyes adjusted to the darkness a little. The door had swung open as I slept. And then I saw it in the hallway outside. Saw what? A face. It was pale and blurred like an old photograph. I could only just make out the eyes. Dark (laughs) circles. And the mouth. It was. it was wide open, as if it was hungry. I. I got up from the bed and I hit the light switch. I forced myself to look back into the hallway. I realized then what I had seen. What was it? It was the mirror my reflection. I laughed. i have been led up the garden path. Still it hadn't been too bad a story for the price of a pint. The man looked offended. What? What are you laughing at? So there was no ghost. You were just frightened yourself to the story. He shook his head. You don't understand. Remember you asked how the story was passed on. Yes, I looked different in the mirror because I was different. Something had changed in my mind. When I had gone to the house that night, I had no idea about the ghost story. I had never heard it. Now it was clear in my head. Every image, every detail as if someone had whispered it in my ear as I slept. I still don't get it. If you knew your house was being demolished, what would you do? To find somewhere else to live. Exactly. Whatever lived under that house, whatever it was they let out in the 1940s, wanted somewhere else to live. And where better to live than inside a story the ghost now existed in the story and through the story it existed in me look he pointed at the TV screen across the bar the picture had just faded to black revealing the reflection of the barman and behind him my companion and and where I should have been I caught a glimpse of something else Just for a moment. A face. A pale, drawn, hungry face. The man knocked back the last of his drink, got up from his stool and straightened his clothes. He suddenly looked years younger. Thank you, he said for lessening. I don't know if there ever was a house off Mortimer Street with a bomb shelter underneath. I don't know if the doctor's room existed. I don't know if the man I met had ever worked, even worked as a doctor. This is all I know. I have not been alone for a long time. to be rid of the ghost story. The ghost that is the story. I had to pass it on. But no one would listen. Nobody wanted to hear about it. I had to wait until I could find a way to tell it a new way, make people want to listen, desperate to hear, to know the end.
2: And now I have.
1: (laughs) Do you like ghost stories? Doesn't everyone?
0: (laughs) Thank you, Peter. And uh, if um, if the guy who's just coming at the back of the room wants to move forward, there are loads of seats...
2: Or you, or
0: you could just stay where you are, with your dark, sunken eyes and pale face, staring intently at the exposed necks of all those people in front of you. It's your choice. And so, the second story of the evening will be Down to what? by Shanoa carroll Brad, and we read by Martine Richards. Shanoa lives in sunny Southern California with her fantastic brother and a miniature direwolf. She adores Doctor Who and Sherlock and writes whatever catches her fancy, from horror to erotica and everything in between. Martine has appeared on stage as Richard II and Ariel and worked extensively in TV, film and voiceover. Recent projects include Dancing on the Edge with John Goodman, and Chihuahua told you and sing <laughs> a US sci-fi directed by Has Martin has dual UK and Canada citizenship and lives in London. Martin Down to One
3: by Shanoa Carol Brown. The townsville of Prairie Bend had caught Slippery Pete around dinner time, cornering the hated outlaw in a back room at the Red Star Saloon. There was never any talk of a trial. They hauled him to the crossroad gallows just as the sun burned itself out behind the hills. The whole town came out to see him swing. Even the babes in arms seemed to stare, goggle eyed and drooling, waiting for justice to be served. I heard they shot him dead a year back in Newcombe County, whispered a young woman as she stared after the bound criminal. The bearded man beside her shook his head. My cousin swear she saw him drown beneath his horse in the Mississippi last fall. An older woman glanced over her shoulder at them, her face a maze of lines. I heard it straight from the sheriff of Fisbee that they cornered him and his posse on a canyon ledge. That vermin fell a corner fight by him. She trailed a finger through the air, then clapped her hands together, simulating the fatal impact. Slippery Pete looked out at the filthy puddle of faces, too few to be called to see. Each one looked back just as small and hard and mean as the prairie pebbles. He'd crossed every person there. Whether he'd pinched their cattle, blamed their horses, stolen their gold, or shot their brothers, not a drop of mercy remained. Pete had felt the noose tightening over the last month, and he watched his posse get taken out one by one, chased down, and exterminated like rats. Now here he was, the last one left, and about to dance beneath the devil's tree. We've caught every last dog in your posse, the ragged sheriff said, and it ends here with you. Any last words, you rotten bastard? Slippery Pete looked at the assembled townsfolk and spied. I have an appointment to keep, so if you're gonna do it, do it! Quit wasting my time. The hard faces all around him stiffened. Maybe they'd expected a concession or some sign of remorse. He enjoyed denying them that last satisfaction. God have mercy on your soul, the sheriff said without a hint of sincerity, then pulled the lever. Slippery Pete died with a smile on his darkening face. The good people of Prairie Bend left his body there on the devil's tree as proof that, at last, someone had gotten the bastard. Night fell, but no desert creature dared disturb the corpse. No vultures landed on the gallows' arm. No insects crawled closer. The coyotes even held up their singing while his body hung. Nothing much stirred until the moon rose, when the ground split open, the sand and hard scrabble vibrated; stones skittering to either side like angry beetles. The wound opened up in the earth, hissing thick, sulphurous fumes. The clear air shook with thunderous hoofbeats, and a dark figure on a flaming yellow horse rode up through the rift. The figure, dressed all in black, dismounted and leapt onto the platform, leaving smouldering, charred footprints across the boards as it approached the hanging man. It took the rope in one hand, setting the rough hand light in a pop of smoke. Slippery Pete dropped to the dirt like a bag of rotting potatoes. The dark figure hopped down and peeled away the choking rope. It squatted over Pete's corpse. He still grinned, though... His swollen tongue had begun to protrude and his face had turned black with congealed blood. The figure reached out and slapped him once, twice, thrice. then rocked back on his heels as the corpse coughed and stirred. Pete sat up, rubbing a dark-fingered hand around his throat and smacking dry lips. All his blood had settled to his extremities as he hung. When his cloudy eyes began to clear he looked up at the moon then at the gallows he grinned teeth startlingly pale in his bloated face the figure raised a hand fingers spread and slowly lowered the last four leaving a sharp now thumb sticking out the dead man nodded and started massaging the circulation back into his legs. One. Life. Left. He rasped. I got it. The dark figure nodded, turned, and leapt back onto his sulfur yellow steed, vanishing into the earth. The rift rattled closed behind him. Slippery Pete staggered up and looked off to the west, where thin trails of smoke A lingering light marked the slumbering town of Prairie Bend. No clouds blocked the stars. It hadn't rained in weeks. The shabby old buildings would be bone-dry. He started forward on stiff legs, headed back to the town that had caught him. They'd all be asleep in their beds at this hour, completely unprepared. He smiled through the dark. Slippery Pete had a whole new lifetime ahead of him. But first, he had a score to settle.
0: Thank you, Marty. Are we okay for. Did that get him? Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Our third story, last one for the interval. Will be at the 12 o'clock by Liam Hogan and be read by Silas Hawkins. Liam's recent publications include The Icy Breath of Enceladus for The Martian Wave, Ports for Steampunk Trails 2, along with the forthcoming story, Elevenses in Zombie Fight 2. All of which totally fails to excuse his dire lack of progress on the novel. <laughs> Silas is continuing the family tradition. He's the son of Peter Dalek Hawkins and Rosemary, Emergency Ward 10, Miller. Favourite voice credits include Summerton Mill, Latin Music USA, and podcasts for The Register. For countless voice clips, go to his website. Silas.
4: The Twelve O'Clock by Liam Hogan The hour on the retro digital clock ticks over and the intercom buzzes at the exact same moment. I steeple my fingers in delight, but there's a pause before the nervous announcement that Mr Prendergast, your twelve o'clock is here a sign of weakness that is as regrettable as my receptionist's punctuality, is admirable. I weigh this against the efficiency with which she performs and the unusual nature of my client, and decide to let it slide. Thank you, Miss Travers. Please, show him in. As my twelve o'clock enters, the life is sucked out of the room. The day which had been one of those crisp autumn days you get towards the tail end of the year is suddenly grey and bleak. Your eminence, I say, inclining my head a fraction, a precisely calculated bow of obeisance, but also serves to indicate the vacant chair on the other side of my desk. But he just stands there, tall, ominous, silent, leeching what little warmth remains. Can I get you a cup of tea or some other refreshment? There is a pause in which it feels as though millennia have passed, before a hoarse croak of a voice with just a hint of annoyance replies, I don't do refreshments. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Silly me, I say, as I lean back in my chair. So, to uh, what do I owe this pleasure? A skeletal hand reaches beneath the black cloak and withdraws a rolled length of frayed parchment which is then artlessly cast onto my desk.
2: I'm here to check on progress.
4: The vellum is darkened by a sketch in a mix of charcoal and an aged brown stain that I strongly suspect was once blood. There's a signature in the same shade that looks as though it might be Leonardo da Vinci's. It's, it's hard to tell. The edges are not only heavily scorched. They're still smoldering. But it's it's easy to see what the strong, angular lines portray. Unmistakably, it is the twisted form of the pinnacle, formerly the Bishop's Gate Tower. And a Just as unmistakably, it's the redesigned but currently awaiting approval incarnation. Oh, come, come. Have we let you down yet? I say, with an easy smile, pressing my thumb to the top of the desk which swirls into a high-definition map of the heart of London. My fingers dance across the touchscreen surface. The Swiss re- Heron Tower, 20 Fenchurch Street, and, of course, the Shard. All on time and to exact specifications. There's another pause, during which ice ages advance and then retreat
2: across Europe. There were issues with 20 Fenchurch Street.
4: I wave my hand dismissively. Deliberate obfuscation, my demonic friend. I tap on the blinking icon, pulling up the schematics. The specifications you gave us were not immediately possible within the current building regulations, so we built something that does meet regulations, and then, when an unfortunate flaw was exposed in the walkie-talkies case, Its ability to melt top of the range sports cars, we we simply fixed it and ended up with exactly what we, what you, wanted in the first place. Still. I wait patiently as mountains are ground down to fine
2: dust. It is all to naught. If the last of the structures is not ready on time. I shrug. What
4: is there to say? The pinnacles, seven story concrete core, and the much more impressive iceberg like six to six point six meter deep foundations are all the progress that can be seen while we subtly alter the original plans to achieve my client's very particular requirements it will be ready
2: canary, what? wash not? <laughs> I'd
4: laugh but to laugh in his presence is to hear that laugh splutter and die, choked of oxygen i venture <laughs> a wry smile instead That cannot in faith be laid at our door since we were not given that contract, I say. But I can't resist a small deal at the same time. And it was not our funds that dried up in the economic slump. Civilizations bloom and then decay, leaving no trace that they have existed. I am weighed and minutely inspected and, of course, found wanting.
2: We are not always convinced that your soul is fully behind our designs.
4: My soul is available to the highest bidder, I say. Which brings me to the small issue of payment. The hand reaches deep within the wispy folds of the cloak and emerges with a black bag that is dropped to my state-of-the-art desk with a heavy clatter and an ominous creak. I wince and wish once again... The forces of darkness moved with the times. Would it be so very much to ask for an electronic transfer of funds? (laughs) Do not fail us, Oswald Prendergast. An inky black cloud fills the room, Claws at my clothes, at my throat, and freezes the trickle of sweat at my collar.
2: My master is coming, His arrival will be heralded by a purging flame that will lay waste to this landscape of mortals. And he is not as forgiving as I!
4: The cloud swirls and vanishes, and my twelve o'clock is gone. crank up the A.C., dial the windows for maximum transparency, and with trembling legs, cross to look out for the hundred million pound view. From here, I can see each of the five buildings that we have been commissioned to uh, not build or design,
2: but to manage.
4: My company's legend attention to detail brought to bear on bringing in the projects on time with millimetre precision. All to make sure that the debacle of Canary Wharf does not repeat. The building was completed too late for their intended purpose. The steady precession of the earth making them entirely redundant. Hmm... Looked at from here, on an A to Z, there is nothing special about the latest arrangement of skyscrapers. They show no common shape, are owned by different companies, will be occupied by different commercial concerns. And yet, each contains vast expanses of carefully aligned steel and glass. And, with a shift of an axis a shift that will match that of the earth on the last day of October on the pagan festival of Salem on Halloween. Those five buildings will form a perfect pentagram, echoing ancient ley lines forgotten beneath the London streets, the points of a star concentrating the setting sun's blood-red rays on a single point. I've idly wondered what would happen if that day were overcast. <laughs> but I doubt the weather will have been left to chance. Nothing else has been, after all.
2: I've had some, some pet
4: boffins go over the numbers. That single point, 20 feet above the building site, will be heated to a temperature hotter than the surface of the sun. Hot enough to form a plasma to uh, burn through the fabric of reality like a cigarette through tissue paper, and to let something long imprisoned in its realm of fire and flames force a way through. The flames that will consume London, the fire that will seek out its sinners, and who has not sinned, <laughs> condemning them to eternal punishment. Or so hopes my twelve o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> the bookcase behind my desk creaks, and the hidden door opens. I turn, and for the second time that day, bow, the Monsignor. The ruddy-faced priest bends his hand to mine, and I kiss the emerald ring. Would you like to view the recording, I ask. He smiles in dumb. I have the feeling he knows more about me than I know about him. And I make it my business to know everything about my clients.
2: And I don't want to be necessary. I have my own
4: sources, he says. This, despite my certain knowledge that my office is not bugged and that the ante-room behind my bookshelf is completely soundproofed. He glances toward the untouched black sack on my desk. May I be my guest? He takes a golden coin from the bag, runs it between his fingers, shudders, and drops it back in with a loud clink. Blood money. I raise an eyebrow. Isn't all money? The average human body contains... Not point .2 milligrams of gold, Oswald, the priest says. I'm sure you can work out how many lives it takes to make just one of these coins. I echo his shudder as he hefts the sack and carefully lowers it into his briefcase, sprinkling it with holy water. As he snaps the case shut, the last of the gloom that had lingered finally evaporates. And I'm glad he will be taking it away with him. Glad, too, for the Vatican's prompt transfer of twice the midday spot price set by the London Metal Exchange. In truth, it is not uh, simply the church's generous doubling of the cursed fee that swayed my company at their side. It is the potential repeat business that thwarting Satan's world-ending plan presents. Now, our little part of the project, he asks. I pull up a satellite map on my desk, ignoring the webbed crack where the heavy sack of blood money had lain. I zoom in, and then again. He suspects nothing, the priest asks. No. I agree. It's just another mothballed building site as far as he's concerned. Good, good. But he knows it was once at church. Yes, of course. But he thinks it was deconsecrated a long time back. He thinks it is due to be turned into a retail shop, an altar to mammon. The dark one thinks that the battle that has raged so long that has swallowed cities entire civilizations that doomed the Tower of Babel, destroyed the library at Alexandria before the fault line moved north through Europe across the Channel and there lingered, causing the Great Fire of London, the Blitz, and more recently the economic downturn, that delayed Canary Wharf, he thinks all this has been forgotten by the Church, and that they have dropped the ball and are blind. powerless to prevent the construction of the soulless and soul-eating structures that will surely bring about the end of this world. If it weren't for the church having a hold over the void at the pentagram's epicenter. And the cross? The priest asks as my eyes are drawn to the crucifix he wears around his neck as I visualise what will be waiting at the exact spot of the seething, scorched wound that the devourer of worlds intends to slash his way through. Twenty-eight feet tall, silver-clad tungsten core, I say. It will be mounted shortly before sunset. Copper wires suspended in tanks of holy water should absorb most of the heat, as well as the evil that is generated. The rest? Well, we expect the entire cross will glow white hot and be visible for miles around. Should be quite the sight. Might even convince a few sinners to repent. (laughs) Excellent.
2: (laughs) Until next time, then, Oswald.
4: The priest takes his leave by the secret doorway to the secret elevator, to his secret organisation deep in the catacombs beneath St. Paul's, and I am once again alone. I press the intercom button. Miss Travers, my twelve o'clock has just left. Could you join me in my office? After a visit from the forces of darkness, I feel an irrepressible desire to do something life-affirming. I'm hoping Miss Travellers feels the same, and uh, although there's only ten minutes before my my next appointment, she is, as I may have already mentioned, quite remarkably efficient.
0: you, Silas. Uh, and that is the end of the first half. Cooling liquid refreshments can be purchased at the bar, but remember, anything over about 40% alcohol is only likely to make things worse. Fifteen minutes.
5: We slashed some lines for Whiskers by David Turnbull. Once there was a boy who built a den beneath his house. He did not set out to do this. In fact, he fell into the foundations of his house by accident. He had been hiding from his father in the cupboard beneath the sink. But the floorboards had rotted from a leaking pipe and they gave way under his weight. The reason the boy had been hiding in the cupboard was that his father had come home roaring drunk. The boy knew from bitter experience that the best thing to do when his father was as drunk as this was to find a good place to hide. He still had faded yellow bruises to remind him what happened if he didn't. The boy had not seen his mother in months. He suspected that the cuts on his father's tattooed knuckles had something to do with her absence. She's gone was all his father said when the boy pressed him over a breakfast of sour milk and burnt toast. The boy could see flecks of red blood on the shirt collar that hung open around his father's bullish neck. You don't say nothing to no one, he said, and ran his big hand over the bristles on his shaven head. A man's house is his castle. And I don't want social services sticking their noses into my business. So the boy kept quiet and kept out of the way. The hollow beneath the house was deep and dark and dank. It was the perfect hiding place. When his father drifted into drunken unconsciousness, the boy dragged down a sleeping bag and pillow and some of his glow-in-the-dark toys for nightlights. from then on whenever his father staggered through the front door the boy would run to the kitchen cupboard pull the door shut and drop down into the safety of the secret den sometimes his father would be angry smashing things and kicking the furniture around sometimes he'd be remorseful and beneath the floorboards the boy would catch little hints and snippets of what might have befallen his mother
2: What have I done? Or why did I do it?
5: The boy would listen in silence. He was not alone down there in the foundations. A family of rats had built nests beneath the joists from tweaks and bits of plastic carrier bag. They befriended the boy and brought him gifts to cheer him up. Pink wads of bubble gum from the pavement to chew on. Bones from the gutter outside the fried chicken shop to gnaw upon. After a while, they brought other rats to see him. Fat, black rats from the city dump with sleek, dark hides. These rats also offered him tributes. Bits of burger with ketchup dried into them. Stale crusts of pizza and chewed off bottoms of cardboard cups with dregs of warm cola. They helped him dig a sloping tunnel from the side of the house to the back garden. At night, while his father snored before the TV in a stupor, the boy would crawl out from beneath the house and prowl the back alleys, the rats seething in an undulating mass about his feet. They taught him how to scare the neighbourhood cats and how to fight the neighbourhood dogs. The more time he spent with the rats, the more it seemed to the boy that he could sense the colours of their moods inside his own head. Marshmallow white for hunger and licorice black for sadness, rage a poker hot red and lust a shimmering shade of blue. He experimented and found that he could transmit colours as well as receive them. If he sent them billowing clouds of white, the rats would scurry off and return with scraps of food scavenged from the bins. If he oozed an oily black, they would huddle around him and meow a discordant lullaby as they caressed him with their tails. If he chose lightning forks of red, they'd rise on their haunches. Hissing and spitting and snarling, black eyes gleaming in the eerie glow radiating from his luminous toys. One night, huddled in his sleeping bag, with all his rats gathered drowsily around him, the boy overheard his father's paranoid, drunken ramblings.
6: He knows. Mm. He knows. Where is the little bastard?
5: He knows. Unable to restrain his curiosity, the boy crawled through the cobwebs and cockroach busts until he was directly beneath the sofa. His rats assembled around him. He heard the chink of a whiskey bottle against the edge of a glass. He'll tell, slurred his father.
3: One day...
5: The bottle chinked against the glass once more.
6: There's nothing for it. I'll have to shut him up.
2: If people ask, I'll say she took him with her.
6: The boy
5: felt black despair descend on him like a shroud. He wanted to scream for someone to help him, but be- instead bit down on his lip. The rats raised their snouts to the floorboards and hissed in sympathy.
6: He's only little, came the voice from above. It won't take much. No one will ever know. Later, when he was sure his father had fallen asleep,
5: the boy crept up to his room. He knew his days were numbered. When his father was sober, the next morning, he'd forget all about what he'd said, but as soon as he was drunk again, the dreadful notion was bound to occur to him anew. The boy took a fat black crayon and stood before the mirror he slashed some lines for whiskers on either side of his face and admired his handiwork. "'Better a live rat than a dead boy!' he whispered and experimented in baring his teeth. At dusk the following evening, the rats discovered the battered body of the boy's mother in a shallow grave behind the garden shed he covered her pitiful remains with fresh soil and placed one of his toys on the mound as a headstone. Holding the flowers he'd stolen from the garden next door, he solemnly recited a prayer he'd learned in the half forgotten days when she'd taken him to school each morning. Then, concentrating harder than he ever had done before, he warned his rat battalions that she should not be disturbed the rats lowered their heads in promise of obedience. A month went by. The boy scowled as he concentrated on resharpening the bloody points of his little wooden sticks against a boulder. He had forged his rats into a ruthless army and led them into battle against a clan of urban foxes whose territory encroached upon the row of restaurant skips. They had long coveted. In victory, he was hailed as a warrior, Prince. Rats bowed before him and hung onto the colour of his every thought. Now it was time for him to slay the monstrous beast that had blighted his life. Holding up a piece of cracked mirror, he took a shard of glass and slashed whiskers of blood into his flesh. He wanted these ones to last. They looked like war paint, his lip curled into a ferocious snarl. Beneath the dull light of a fingernail moon, he crept into the bushes and concealed himself there. A legion of rats fell in behind him, breath vapour rising in streamers from panting mouths, dark eyes watching, noses twitching. The curtains to the back of the house were open. He could see his father on the sofa nursing a glass of whiskey. He picked up a stone and threw it at the window. Click! It went against the glass. His father's head snapped round instantly. The boy threw another stone. Click! Again. His father stood up and lurched drunkenly to the window, sloshing his whiskey about. The boy threw a third stone. This one caused a hairline crack to snake a jagged path across the glass. When his father turned and headed to the kitchen, the boy ran swiftly out to the lawn and carefully placed the -the jack-in-the-box he'd retrieved earlier from his room. He hoped to sow confusion in his enemy in order to benefit from the element of surprise. Setting the internal working of the box in motion, he dashed back to the cover of the bushes, sending calming clouds of gentle hues before him to save his troops. The kitchen door opened A wedge of yellow light fell on the green lawn. His father came out to the doorstep and stood there, swaying. Who's there? He called into the darkness. On the lawn, the -the jack-in-the-box let out a sudden high-pitched squeal as it crashed through the lid. Jesus Christ! cried his father, stumbling back and dropping his glass to shatter on the doorstep. The jack yawed creepily back and forth on its spring. Toothy smiled like the cemetery grin on the skull of a skeleton. His father swayed some more, then clenched his big tattooed fists and puffed out his chest in defiance.
6: Think that's funny? He asked the darkness. Show yourself and I'll make you laugh on the other side of your fucking face!
5: The boy held his breath as he watched him. He was truly a monster. Crooked nose and freshly shaved head. Fat beer belly that belied the sadistic power that rippled in his biceps. The boy felt his confidence begin to waver. Fear came to him. Its colour was purple, like the hideous blooms on some tangled and thorny briar. Its vicious spines pierced his bravado. He began to shiver. He wanted to cry. Come on, roared the beast. SHOW YOUR FACE! This wasn't the time to falter. The boy thought of his mother, and a mighty wave of crimson came at him. It smothered the purple briar and filled him with a righteous fury. He stepped at last from the bush onto the lawn and stood on what he now considered to be his hind legs. bare knees scabbed and scratched, uncut toenails curved into claws on his filthy feet. There was a ragged, white-tipped foxtail passed through the belt loops of his shorts and a leathery fox-ear medal pinned to the breast of his threadbare shirt. He had blood on his hands and blood on his teeth. He gripped his little sticks and let out a confrontational snarl. "'Son,' said his father, seeming somehow to deflate, "'is that you?' The boy ran at him, weapons held high above his head, cold air biting at the wounds he had slashed for whiskers. His father crouched down and held out his big arms. The boy wasn't sure if his father intended to embrace him or throttle the life out of him, but he knew he could not afford a moment of hesitation. With a yell, he brought down his sticks and plunged them deep into the neck of the beast. The beast slumped blood gurgling over his beefy shoulders. The look on his face was one of surprise and terror. The air that gushed from his mouth was rank from the raw stench of booze. The boy fell down hard onto the com- cold concrete of the patio and pushed back with his heels. The brute lurched forward and grabbed his skinny ankles with his big hands. He began to haul the boy back to the step. Like mother, like son! Like he rasped, spitting pink gobs of blood. If I'm going to go, I'm taking you with me. The boy twisted his head round and hissed a command to his waiting army. They came now, bounding powerfully across the lawn, jaws spread wide, black lips drawn back over razor-sharp teeth. When they fell upon the beast, they showed him no mercy. Once, they had brought the boy snacks. Now they had a banquet as a reward. When he set light to the house with his father's gnawed corpse in it, the smell was like fried chicken. From two streets away, he could still see the flames rising Yellow fingers to the night sky. He turned and descended with his rats down into the sewers.
0: Thank you, Gloria. Our penultimate story for the evening. We Greenwich Noon. By Vincent Kelly, be read by Jennifer Tang. Vincent writes in a shed on an allotment in Cornwall, where he can watch his untended plot return to the wild. This is his first piece for Lysley, but hopefully not his last. Jennifer trained at Oxford School of Drama. Theatre includes *In Dogger's Land, Dimsom Nights*, and *The Chamber of Curiosities*. She's best known as the voices of Nadia and Jody in the fitness app zombies, run. (laughs) And has been a liar for many years. Jennifer.
7: Greenwich Noon by Vincent Kelly. I know when it's noon, though I am blind and dumb and kept in a small cell in the rafters of the Royal Observatory. I know when it is noon. I know because at precisely that time, a retired ship's surgeon will carve the day's date into my flesh. Each letter, each numeral, is a series of slashes of the knife. He cuts swiftly with precision. The wound is then sprinkled with the powder of sympathy, a pungent, acrid substance which reacts violently with my tortured skin and burns, and burns, and burns. The surgeon, I think, is glad that I cannot scream. Halfway round the world, they hope that the deep cuts they make in me are felt by my twin sister. We are part of a sea trial, she and I, an attempt to claim the prize promised by the Longitude Act of 1714. Her role as the seafaring twin was decided for her because she, though blind as I am, can cry out as I cannot, and so alert the sailors aboard the distant schooner Regina that it is noon here (laughs) in Greenwich. By comparing this with their own local noon, they will then know their longitude. So goes the theory. The sea trial will be deemed a failure, a relief perhaps to any other twins born to our abject poverty, and equally lacking in those attributes by which they might be considered human. For we are referred to not as people, but as dogs. That is how we are seen. Two worthless lives, two souls so damaged from birth that until this cruel experiment began, we weren't even given names. Now they call me Sirius, after the dog star. They call my sister Venus, the brightest of the wandering stars. They imagine her wandering across the oceans, looking to the dog star to know her place upon this earth. You must wonder how it is that I know what I know. How it is that I can even tell my story when I lack the senses you take so easily for granted. You assume, asked us the surgeon, that because I am dumb, I am also deaf. You assume that because I cannot see, that I cannot write. I have learnt the shape of your words. With my fingers, I have traced the rough edges of the scars they leave on my skin. These have been hard lessons. Every word carries the pain of cutting it into my flesh. This is how I order my thoughts. By the long, sharp strokes of an L. By the twist that tugs at the skin for the curve of a C. By the swift back and forth of an S. Each letter I know by how it feels have it inscribed upon me. The lesson reinforced by the searing agony of the caustic powder with which my wounds are sprinkled. I am ignored by the surgeon and by the two who throw the rancid food into my cell and who all too rarely sweep the soiled straw from it. They are carefree with their words, these fools, for what does it matter what is said in front of one who cannot repeat what they say? I think back to my sister and when we sent. We, I think back to when my sister and I shared a filthy, infested bed in the hell in which we were raised, a hell that I now return, long to return to. She would croon to me, her awkward voice a balm against the kickings and the abuse that was always there, always sudden and unforeseen. When we were brought for the first time to Greenwich, and for the first time separated I could still hear her through the thin walls of our cells and I was not as concerned as I should have been and when she cried out in pain when some terrible injury was done to her I shared that pain and thrashed and jerked in torment to the evident satisfaction of the great and good men there present if only I had stayed still Our fate might have been different, and she would not be lost to me now. My cell is quiet, with only me in it. If I lie still, I can hear the conversations happening next door or below. There is a great space there. Once a week, a crowd throngs, a meeting of the commissioners of the discoverer of the longitude at sea, and the voices of the speakers are raised above the din of the multitude. From them, I have learnt of the prize that condemned my sister and I. They talk about it incessantly, one crazed scheme after another. Sometimes they mention the Regina, and I know that these men, for all their fine, learning and long words, do not know what I know, that the Regina will never return home, that it moulders at the bottom of the ocean. I know this because I have felt it, and my body was only half as scarred as it is now. I awoke, breathless and panicky, a feeling that only intensified as I struggled to suck down the damp night air, as my bloodied hands beat upon the floor, until suddenly a bucket of my own filth was thrown over my shuddering form. As the cold, rank liquid dripped off my face, I knew with more certainty than I had ever known anything before. Whatever small space my sister was confined to aboard the Regina, it was flooded. My sister was drowned. I felt her anguish in every part of me, across the miles of oceans and land. I felt the pressure and the burning flames in her lungs as the ship surely sank. Afterwards, I sat in a corner while my jailers laughed and spat and kicked. I was consumed by an emptiness that hollowed me out from within and I knew that for the first time I was truly alone I could not comprehend why the surgeon still came the next day and the next how could he not feel it too how could he not know the Regina is overdue 14 months it has been gone There are few parts of me left that remain unmarked by the passage of time by the surgeon's knife. But still he keeps coming. Every day the surgeon cuts the date into me, sending an unheeded message to the bottom of the sea that it is noon here in Greenwich. Today is the last such day. Though I am blind, I hear the key in the lock as the surgeon opens the door, his footsteps as he approaches across the wooden boards. I know how long it takes between the lifting of the rags that cover me and the first cut of the knife. I smell his stale sweat and feel his hot breath and steel myself. The surgeon rests the point of the knife where he will make his first cut and exhales to steady his aim with my left hand that I have wriggled free of my bonds I reach out and seize his wrist and with my other I twist and slam the sharp blade into his exposed throat I wait until I can no longer hear the drumming of his heels on with deep with straw strewn floor before I withdraw the knife it does not take long though I mute I inscribe my story this story For all to read, whether by sight or by touch, onto the body of the surgeon. I swiftly slash each neat letter, feeling the splash of the still warm blood spill onto my fingers, hearing the drip to the wooden boards at my feet. I hope, I pray that it will drip all the way through to the congregation gathered in the great space below, as they sit there discussing balloons and cannon ships and the moons of Jupiter. And let those learned men know that it is noon here in Gorinich.
0: Thank you, Jenna. Before the final story. Good evening, some notices. The Liars will return on the 11th of November with Vice and Virtue. Our final 2014 submission deadline is the 2nd of November for our Christmas themed Mistletoe and Wine. (laughs) If you've been meaning to write for us all year and have yet to do so, this is your last chance. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Details of this, along with the videos and recordings from previous events, are all on the Liars' website. And so, the final story of the evening will be Slash Friction by Alan Gray, read by Linda Lodge. Alan studied creative writing and economics at UEA and is still unsure which discipline relies on make-believe the most. <laughs> he currently lives and works in London. Linda is a jobbing actor who lives in London. She's played several torturers and murderers, <laughs> as well as nicer people, including the murderer's mum, Madame Raskolnikova, and the murder victim, Alonia, in Crime and Punishment, adapted for stage by Jackson Wright. Linda is represented by Rosemary Management and London VoiceOver.
2: Linda!
6: Slash Friction by Alan Graham. Spock heard the quiet shush of the door and looked up. There stood Kirk, his captain in so many
2: ways.
6: (laughs) Spock knew his Vulcan training for bad displays of emotion, but his half-human side overwhelmed him and he raced over. He embraced Kirk and... They kissed. <laughs> <laughs> Spock began to explain how worried Sick he had been, how he had feared the evil android queen may have parted them forever. But Kirk began nibbling his Vulcan ear, and <laughs> Spock knew that this was no longer a night for talking. <laughs> this was a night
2: for passion. <laughs>
6: "'It was at this point that Angus stopped reading my draft "'and looked at me. (laughs) (laughs) "'You know, I like it, Maddy,' he began. "'But classic Star Trek again?' "'I had not expected this reaction from Angus. "'The man had always loved my work "'and the Kirk-slash-Spock stories most of all. "'He'd been my first-ever fan. "'We met in the very early days,' back when I stayed late in the office to secretly type these stories for my own amusement on the work computer. One night, I tried printing my efforts on the company's dot matrix printer, and it had jammed in the middle of my most erotic paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) Angus was the engineer sent to fix the problem. I remember being terrified that he'd realised I was using business equipment for personal reasons and get me fired. Instead, he read my story and loved it. In fact, he'd been so enthused, I felt confident enough to share with him all the stories I had written up to that point. The ongoing saga of a dashing captain and the ice-cold science officer whose heart he melts and then has passionate, loving sex with repeatedly (laughs) It had been Angus who told me all about this new phenomenon called the internet and how my stories might find new fans around the world simply by being put up on what he calls a web page It was all so exciting It felt like being published But now, many years later, here was Angus criticising my work. I wasn't used to that, and I could feel an awful frustration building up inside me as he tried to justify his comment. I mean, there's not wrong with classic Star Trek, he continued, but why not try spicing things up a bit? You don't have to give up on Kirk and Spock. But how about involving them in a threesome with Princess Leia?
2: <laughs>
6: ridiculous, I blurted out. She's from Star Wars. It's an entirely different universe. You can't cross franchises like that. But Angus ploughed on. People are maddy. You may not like it, but it's what everyone is doing nowadays. And traffic to their websites is going through the roof. No one's interested in Spock and Kirk repeatedly making love like an old married couple. Not anymore. That was the point when I stopped being able to take his attitude. I leapt up out of my chair and grabbed my draft from his hands. True erotic romance will never go out of fashion. I hissed, trying to make my exit as dramatic as possible. I could hear Angus pleading as I stormed away. Just try it, my dear. You could make millions. Just look at Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> uh, do not ever mention that book to me again.
2: <laughs>
6: and with my final parting shot, I was gone. However, over the next few days, I found I couldn't quite shake off Angus's words. It was true that traffic to my website had fallen recently, and that did rather hurt. I mean, I consider myself an artist. The work is its own reward. But there was a small part of me that missed all the attention. Would it be so bad, I thought, to at least consider the competition? if only to confirm how bad it was. And so began many depressing hours trawling the web for what passed as fan fiction these days. It was all wrong. There was no romance. No real human passion. Just sordid characters from films and television rotting like savages. <laughs> The new writers, they weren't interested in the workings of their characters' hearts. They just lined them up all for one big crossover gangbang, an orgy inspired by randomly shuffled trading cards. The funny thing was, the more I sneered at this stuff, the more it fired me up to write. I'd show everyone how pathetically easy it would be to write in this style and be a success. So that night, I sat at my writing desk and began typing. The lights on the Enterprise were set to dim this simulated late evening for the crew, (laughs) (laughs) telling everyone that the workday was over and it was time to cut loose and enjoy life. A good start, I thought, one of my classic setups. Now to throw something different into the mix. Handsome outlaw, palm solo, crept <laughs> along the ship's corridors. The man had love on his mind, and he was not a man to give up on a mission. As I typed, I could feel my rational brain in revolt. Han Solo on the Enterprise. (laughs) (laughs) This is wrong. (laughs) But I had to do this, so I made myself continue typing. Han reached the door of the captain's quarters and produced a stolen sonic screwdriver from his waistcoat. (laughs)
2: pocket.
6: He waved it at the door, and it shoozed open. He crept inside. There, asleep on the bed, was Captain Kirk, completely naked. (laughs) Hans smiled as he walked over and began gently stroking Kirk's hip whispering I've travelled many parsecs to be with you Kirk (laughs) (laughs) at this point I realised I was sweating every instinct I had screamed that that this was wrong Han with Kirk was wrong yes I found my fingers wouldn't stop as if they were freed from my rational restraints Kirk woke gently from his slumber and his beautiful hazel eyes stared angrily at Han. My fingers were a blur now. It was like I did not know what I was typing anymore. This is wrong. Kirk spoke angrily and Han jumped back, (laughs) surprised by the captain's hostile tone. You should not be
2: here.
6: Indeed, you are right to find this illogical, Captain. The voice of Spock made Han Solo. Spin around. There was the Vulcan, newly emerged from the shower, wearing only a tiny towel and clutching a powerful phaser gun. Clinically, Spock pulled the trigger and Han Solo exploded in a violent shower of blood. Kirk moved to run over to his lover but before he was halfway across the room he was waylaid by Princess Leia. (laughs) (laughs) You
2: bastard!
6: She screamed as she cut half his face off with a machete. (laughs) I could not stop typing. (laughs) The crew of the Enterprise were now facing off against the great and the good from across all of genre fiction. (laughs) Leia was shot by a crossbow wielded by a drug-addled Legolas, (laughs) who was himself torn to shreds by a pack of zombie
2: Ewoks.
6: (laughs) And this just went on as I wrote for the rest of the night, each new execution more blood-drenched and gore-heavy than the one before. It was as the light of dawn broke into my writing room that I wrote these final words to my new epic. Waving his severed stump of an arm one final time, the dying Luke Skywalker sent all sixteen chainsaws rattling through what was left of Bruce Wayne. (laughs) Finally restoring balance to the universe. (laughs) <laughs> I slumped back in my chair, exhausted. I now knew that I just could not write for this new modern audience. But then a curious thing happened. Angus got to read this new story and he loved it. And after he'd put it online, I soon had new fans, desperate for more. Within a few months, people had begun to refer to me as the queen of slasher slash fiction, (laughs) assuring me that all of the copycat (coughs) writers emerging in my wake lacked my magic touch. I wrote constantly to meet this demand. I even began receiving numerous requests from my new fans, asking me to write about their favourite characters from emerging cult successes I'd never heard of. It was especially enjoyable to learn about these frankly rather dull new heroes, purely for the purposes of devising ways to slaughter them. <laughs> it was then that I received my first actual phone call from an actual real-life book publisher. The young man on the line was very enthusiastic, stating that if I just changed the names involved, he was certain that they might be able to publish my most recent work, *Punable*. In
2: Hogwarts.
6: (laughs) He then began listing his favourite deaths from my work, gleefully recounting how much he'd enjoyed the story where Spock had been burnt to a crisp by an angry Godzilla. And I began to feel uneasy again. And as he continued on about the Fifty Shades phenomenon and my fingers twitching again as if I (coughs) had to type something as soon as possible. I hung up the phone, made conversation and went straight to my writing room. There, I sat at my desk and my fingers began furiously typing. A sea of blood overwhelmed Kirk. As his lungs filled with the red liquid, his mind raced with perhaps his final thought. Could this be the... Moment I die.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
6: and then Kirk woke up to find himself in his captain's bed on the Enterprise. He was drenched in sweat and tangled up awkwardly in his sheets. Spock, Spock, he shouted anxiously and his beloved science officer raced out of the bathroom wearing only a very, very tiny (laughs) towel. Kirk began to explain how he'd had a terrible nightmare of strange characters from distant universes and how they'd triggered a horrific massacre. And as he spoke, Spock wrapped him tensely in his arms, and whispered it is not logical to be affected by such nightmares darling (laughs) (laughs) they do not mean anything and as I typed Spock speaking these words I began to feel happy a joy in writing that I realised I hadn't felt for a considerable amount of time thank you old friend Kirk smiled, moving purposefully to turn himself around in Spock's arms, where he began to kiss his way slowly down the Vulcan's athletic body. (laughs) And they went on to have passionate, loving sex repeatedly.
0: Thank you, Linda. And Alan. And and that, ladies and gentlemen, is that. Uh, Those of you who can stand the heat are welcome to stick around for a while longer. But if you find that the person sitting next to you is smoking, please do help put them out. And now, give roaring thanks to our terrifying authors and to our hot, hot, hot actors Good night!